This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kempf and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes. My name is Seb. And my name's Al. This podcast is about transformative moments in the classroom. We believe that these moments, when we bring our classrooms to life, can often be achieved by making small changes that are easy to adopt. And that's our focus. Small things communicated in simple ways by great teachers who know that these practices have made a difference to their students. So you listen to what these teachers have to say, you reflect on their practices, and you think about whether that might actually work for your own students. And because we know your time poor and very busy, we want to communicate these small lessons in a jargon-free way. That's why we have the teaching jargon buzzer. No, 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 no. And we like to hit that buzzer when we hear buzzwords which may be more at home in a teaching committee or a faculty meeting. So, Seb, shall we introduce this week's guest? With great pleasure, our guest in the studio today is Professor Chris Roy-Smith, who is a professor in international relations at the School of Political Science and International Studies here at UQ, which is another way of saying Chris is one of our colleagues. Chris, welcome. Thank you, guys. We do know, uh, Chris, that uh, big theory courses which you teach can be quite challenging for students. They can often be difficult to understand, quite dense subject matter, and it can be sometimes difficult to bring energy. And our theme today is bringing energy into the lecture room. And we know you as someone who brings their lectures to life, so we want to talk about how you do that. Let's start with this energy and presence and what you call the iron law of teaching. What is that and what does it mean? Yeah, look, this is something that I, I learnt really early on in, in my career and that is that, you know, it seems to me to be a, a direct relationship between the amount of energy that you bring into a classroom and the amount of energy that you can get out of your students and engagement that you can get out of them. And if you so if you want to create a buzz in a lecture theatre, you want to create a sense of it, engagement, then you need to bring that into the room with you. And what does that look like in terms of the actual experience? It's you going full throttle for two hours or moving through different gears? The other thing that I'd stress is that, you know, I'm a strong believer that, that lecturing is a, is a performance art. Right, and I think if you if you fail to understand that, right, that there's a that there's a, an element of the actor in every good lecturer, then you're just going to be a pretty dull lecturer. It's all about it's all about the performance, and that means being physical in your lectures. It means being animated. It means using your body language to convey your own enthusiasm, but also to use your movement in the space of the lecture to draw students into it, which often means, you know, when I talk to students, I try to make le- my lectures uh, interactive. So I'll, I will often move around the lecture theatre and approach students to draw them out, to engage them. Uh, rather, than, I very rarely stand behind the lectern to deliver a lecture. Most of my lectures, I deliver, my, I have a, a framework of notes and then I deliver lectures from memory. So it's all about getting away from the lectern. It's about the physicality of your engagement with the students and your movement in space. Mm. So obviously physicality is one key element. I mean, having known you for 
I think about 10 years now, you are also, I think, naturally a very energetic, very positive person whose, whose positive energies are quite infectious to, to a room. So I can really see how that comes through, that physical element very closely tied to how I read your, your nature. But I also think that what's interesting is that energy, you say, is something that comes also obviously out of what it is that you deliver the content of what students are presented with in your class. And you spend quite a bit of time carefully preparing some of those aspects, theories, concepts around key problems in the design. How do you do this and how does that play out in the classroom? Yeah, so all of my classes are, are designed around a central problematic. So the key thing for me uh, in my engagement with the students is to, in, is to encourage in them an intellectual engagement and a sense of excitement uh, and puzzlement in their relationship to the material. And for me, that means that, you know, I build an entire course around a central puzzle. And so everything in the course is, is about that central puzzle. And so when I set up the course at the beginning, I spent a lot of effort conveying that to them. Uh, so if I can give you an example of that, so in the first year theories of international relations course, you know, I make an argument for thinking about international relations as a field of study that should be focused on the global organization of political authority. So I explain to students what political authority is, but then I use a series of maps to just show how dramatically over the course of the last millennia the political authority and its organization in the globe has changed and that for most students they have no idea of that so i begin with a kind of political map contemporary political map of europe and they can all understand that there's sovereign states there's borders there's france there's germany right and then i show them a hundred years earlier how the world was organized politically with a map of the world divided into empires and i said this is a but this has been a fundamental reconfiguration in how political authority has been organized on the globe. And that's what international relations needs to focus on. And for most students, they've never thought about this in their life. And that kind of hooks them in. That idea of a single central puzzle as a narrative throughout the 12 or 13 weeks that you return to in different ways, is that how you do it? Absolutely. So in the theories, in the introductory class, you know, the first, I, I will talk about theory, I assume, at some point, but when I look at the various, I look at seven different theoretical approaches to IR in the first part of the course, and all of those I interpret as essentially being different arguments about the organisation and distribution of political authority. And that's the same for feminism as it is for realism. And then when I get to the more empirical part of the course, where we look at war and economics and environment and culture and rights all of those are read as engines that have been involved in the configuration and reconfiguration of political authority on the globe so that central problematic runs through the entire course and this is something we hear a lot isn't it in, in these recordings having the central narrative to perform around building and unpacking it across that period it's so important to have that coherence around the performances and to articulate it mm. to make it obvious to the students what the narrative is right but that's something you set out and then continuously obviously as you said come back to but there's obviously more than obviously the physical energy or how you engage with the example you just 
gave here. And we asked you a little bit about what are these for yourself, these these moments where where you as a teacher, but also the students can feel somehow the dynamic has changed. Something really has happened. And in your case, you quite often design your lectures to confront what we, we might call sort of taken for granted positions. What does that mean and what effect does that have? One of the things that, you know, students and, and you know, uh, Al, you used the example of, of their students' assumptions about theory before, but I think, you know, students come into a class with a series of assumptions and these assumptions about about international relations, they'll have a set of folk ideas about this and, and, and they'll have a set of ideas about theory and so forth. And what I like to do is to unsettle those and often to turn them, turn them on their heads. You know, so one example would be, you know, one of the things that most students, you know, will have a sense, you know, is they, that when we get to talking about Marxism, which I teach is, which often isn't taught in international relations courses anymore, is that, uh, you know, you need to convince students that it's worthwhile actually going back to something they think was delegitimated by the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I draw them into elements of Marxist thought. One of the things that I do is that I'll say to them, for example, so, you know, what is it that capitalists hate most? And they'll, of course, you know, and I then brainstorm it in the class and they'll come up with with all sorts of different things like, you know, communists or government or things like that. And almost none of them ever get to the fact that the thing that capitalists hate most is competition. And that enables me to then talk about a central Marxist idea, which I think is one of the most compelling Marxist ideas, which is Lenin's argument that capitalism tends toward monopoly, right? And that, that as you, in any capitalist market, you will get a tendency for the big fish to chew up the little ones. And that's why most states retain antitrust or anti-monopoly legislation and that enables me to talk about the role of political authority in relation to trust structuring the economy right when in when i'm talking about economics and politics in their relationship and that draws captures students interest because they'd never thought about something like that before so this is one of another themes that come across with good lectures that we plan for these moments moments where you take students out their comfort zone revelatory moments moments where you open up students to to really uh, receive a big lesson. One of the things I'm fascinated by is, sure, it's a performance, sure, it can be uh, spontaneous, but you also need to plan for these moments, don't you? You mentioned earlier you do a lot from memory, and obviously, as you build a career, you know what works and you know what doesn't, and you refine your lectures and the performance gets stronger every time. Do you, or have you ever sat down and really planned around those moments or have they developed organically? I mean, I think the honest answer to that is that sometimes I think them through when I'm thinking through a lecture, but often they're things that, you know, fall into my lap as I'm giving the lecture. So, for example, I now use a technique when I'm trying to explain to students what a social structure is. Many years ago, I sort of fell into a routine of saying, okay, well, first of all, let's think about physical structures, right? I'm standing in a lecture theatre, it has four walls, it has two doors, and but I'm a liberal, right? I believe in personal freedom. I believe that my personal freedom should not be constrained. And so I go into this kind of monologue about my personal freedoms and the tyranny of physical structures, and then I literally sort of throw myself into a wall as I try to leave the room 
instead of going out of a door. And I say, and that enables me to talk about physical structures as being constraining. And then I go on to talk about, well, we also have social structures and social structures are also constraining. And an example I use with students, I once lived next door to a wedding reception place in the hills outside Melbourne. And it struck me that that every wedding that I was seeing every Saturday looked remarkably similar, regardless of whether people turned up in togas or in Victorian costume. And so I use it, I say to students, look, you know, actually at some point you're going to have a conversation with your best friend, I don't know, Julie or something, and Julie's going to say, you know, John and I, we've decided to get married, but, you know, it's going to be the most special, unique wedding that we're ever going to have. And they spend two years planning the most unique wedding. But when you get there, it still looks like every other wedding that you've ever been to. And that's because there's a social structure around the institution of the wedding and marriage that consists of norms and rules and practices that your family police as you're going through that process about how you do this correctly and that enables me to get to take students for, from physical the idea of a physical structure or social structure in a way that they can understand and so that's a good point to think about in terms of a practice these moments that kind of emerge spontaneously you should hold on to reflect on and then actually develop year on year. We've all stumbled into moments where we've had that change and that transformation, and that's where they appear. They need not necessarily be scripted. They can be organic. I think that's an important point. I find it fascinating listening to you, Chris, because you are teaching theory courses. And I'm just wondering when I listen to you speak with such richness about how you explain particular phenomena. Is that the only way in which you can conceive over the years of experience that this is the way you actually have to teach theory? Otherwise, you'll lose the students, you will lose the audience? If you just go into a classroom and you launch into a lecture that says, right, now we're going to do theories of international relations and we're going to start with realism and, uh, and we're going to go through them, I think then a lot of students will, will turn off. Right, and I think because the assumption is that that you know for a lot of students theory is either too complicated and too abstract, or it's irrelevant. You know, why do I need theory? I just want to learn about facts. Right? What I've learned over the years is that you is that you actually need to persuade students that theory is important, and so particularly in the in the first year class. I spent an entire lecture say, that's called Theory is Your Friend. And I begin by with a really simple conception of what theory is. So I say, look, theories are just nothing more than organized assumptions that enable us to make sense of complexity. That's all they are. But we use theories every single day in our lives as we navigate our way through the complex social world that we do, right? And I'll use the example of, you know, I, I went out, you know, I remember being in Chicago for a, for a conference and I was staying at the Hilton on Michigan Avenue. I got up in the morning, I went out to go for a run. I went out and I went to the traffic lights and I, I looked to see whether there was any, any traffic coming on the right and I jogged off across the road, there wasn't any traffic. And people started screaming at me. It's like, get off the road. I said, and suddenly I realized that actually the traffic was coming from the left and there were like five lanes of traffic very very close to me I don't think I've ever run as fast in my life but what I say to students is that's an example of how my assumptions that navigate, enable me to navigate through daily life were wrong 
And then I go through and then I take them to a next step and say, okay, so let's think about you're invited to somebody's house for dinner, but there's a whole series of assumptions you make about what dinner is, uh, about friendship, about how you behave when you go to dinner, do you take a bottle, whatever else. And those are the things that innate. And when you get those wrong, if you find yourself in a kind of different sort of cultural setting, you understand the importance of those assumptions. Then I take them to, to the example for perhaps of you know five friends sitting in a pub talking about Middle Eastern politics and how you'll have a range of different positions that all are based on some kind of assumption about what makes the political world go around. What I try to convince them of is, first of all, theorizing is an everyday practice, right? And that means that you can't, the only choice you've got is not avoiding it, right? You can't not be a theorist. You can be unreflective about the theoretical assumptions you make, or you can be reflective about them. And that enables me to move into international relations theory as these are just assumptions about that enable us to make sense of complexity. So you have these moments that are, you can start with an everyday experience that you notice when you're out and about and you think, oh, that's a nice hook. I know I teach rational choice with supermarket and shopping examples and also um, sociological institutionalism in relation to cognitive scripts around cues, what you do when you enter a queue. And it seems to me these are moments where you can immediately get people's attention but demystify and then pivot to the bigger stuff. Absolutely. Mm. I don't know if that speaks to you, Seb. I don't know your style in terms of content, but I do that quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, but it's not about what I do. I'm I'm more interested in coming (laughs) back to Chris. And obviously, like, you have had a lot of experience with developing your own personal style, that energetic style in the lecture and how you go about doing this. I assume, however, that you haven't started off that way that you had to kind of learn the trade, trial and error, find out what kind of works to come up with that particular way in which after so many years now you are you are actually presenting yourself and, and helping students learn the in the lecture. Like, how did that process work and, and did you deliberately try and maybe talk us through that a little bit? Before I did my PhD, I actually had a full-time academic job as what we what was then called a senior tutor. And so I uh, taught big undergraduate classes with a lecturer, you know, and I would do all the tutorials and so forth. And and I, ha- I was fortunate then to work with some really great teachers, and particularly Robin Jeffrey, the great India Indian politics scholar who's still one of the most brilliant teachers I've ever seen. And I learnt a lot about simply the craft of lecturing and teaching, all right? Although he was not physically a great performer. He used lots of other techniques in what he was doing. But I think the other th- the other part of the story is that when I s- had the first opportunities to give my own lectures, I wrote them out in great detail. You know, I had the entire text of the lecture sitting in front of me. And so I stood there behind the lectern and moved my way through this. And, you know, I'd have my slides that I'd kind of click at the appropriate moment. But the most liberating thing for me was when I realized that actually... I needed, if I could get my lecture down to much more a kind of skeletal set of dot points, I might have, if I want to use some quotes, key quotes, I might have them there to refer to. And then that enabled me to, for my own communication of the information that I wanted to do, to become much less scripted and to, for me to be able to walk away from the lectern 
And that was enormously liberating. And I think if I was to say to to anybody is, you know, at a certain point, get the confidence to walk away from from the text and to and to in, and for, in some ways force yourself to do that by sitting down and coming up with a structure, but not a not a detailed, you know, textual uh, exposition of the lecture. And then just go in there and have a conf- the confidence to rely on your knowledge and to step away from from the text. And that, I guess, is also the moment when you then start really engaging with the students, with the audience. In that, in that sense, if you're just constantly keeping your eyes on on the text, then it's just a kind of reading out kind of delivery that doesn't even allow you to open up the space to rope in the examples and the ways in which you can bring that alive. And a related thing to that is, you know, everybody who knows me knows that I'm a, a great skeptic about PowerPoint. This is this also, I think, relates to the performativity of what you can do as a lecturer. I don't like having lots of detailed PowerPoint slides because I want people looking at me, not looking at a PowerPoint slide. And if they're looking at the PowerPoint slide, they're not looking at me, then a lot of what I'm trying to do in the lecture disappears. And so I use PowerPoint slides literally to set out a few main points on a topic and I might use them if I've got an image that I want to to present but I don't use them to stack lots of lots of information into it's wonderful on the one hand that we have an audio podcast it's a shame it's not a video podcast because you could have actually seen Chris being animated both hands left and right of the microphone but I think you would have heard it it really speaks and I think that element of of energy not only just in the physical sense the presence the performance but also in the insight of how to bring topics that are very theoretical alive to the students and thereby enable them to learn has come across extremely well so chris been wonderful to have had you on here so if you as a listener heard anything that you like please tune into our other episodes you can also follow us on our social media accounts Thanks for joining us and we look forward to your company again.